But let's turn to um, John's Gospel. John chapter 2. It's on page 1065. And we're going to read the second half of John chapter 2. So John chapter 2, verse 13, where we read this. When it was almost time for the, Passover, for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is God's word. We're going to pray, going to ask that God would help us. Um, So let's bow our heads. Let's pray now. Father, thank you that this word was inspired by your Spirit so that we might know truth. Lord, please show us more of Christ today, we pray. In his name we ask it. Amen. Um, So the nights are drawing in. Not quite as much daylight as they used to be. Sunshine seems to be uh, far much more of a rare thing than it once was. And I don't know how you find this time of year. If you're new to the UK, let me warn you, it gets worse. Um, If you found yourself getting cold, you're in trouble. But for most of us, I think this time of year can have that sense of, oh, can't it? And perhaps even as we start October, you know, we've done September. September is everything new, everything's quite exciting. We get to this point and everything just feels a bit mundane and a bit... Oh, I've got to go to work again, I've got to study again. And do you know what? Even church can begin to feel like that, can't it? Let's be honest. Sometimes it can feel like, oh, I've got to go to church again, I've got to go to this group again, I've got to meet this person, I've got to do this. What we desperately need on winter days is a glimpse of the bright glory of Jesus. A brightness that will crack through the dark clouds and flood our hearts with joy and hope and freedom. Let me ask you, is that what you long for? Wouldn't that be good this afternoon? 
Wouldn't it be good in the midst of the darkness and the gloom that we so often feel and the sense of boredom and mundane and ordinary to get a glimpse of glory that leaves us going, that's what I'm living for. That's what life's about. That's what we're going to try and do this afternoon. Because when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he saw a temple that was gloomy. He saw a temple that had lost its sparkle, that had lost its joy, and was dark and cloudy. And what Jesus did in the temple that day was he exposed their hearts and then he blew their minds. That's what he did. And that's what we're going to ask he do for us. Expose our hearts, expose where we're wrong, and then blow our minds to show us what is really true. This account that we have here splits into two parts. And if we can get to grips with what is happening here, even on the darkest and most gloomy of days, we will glimpse glory. And that glory will be enough to help us to know what's worth living for. So I want to invite you this afternoon to come and glimpse glory with me. Come and see Jesus for all he really is. Maybe you've never seen him before. Maybe you've never seen him as exciting or glorious. Can I try and show you this afternoon? Maybe you've just lost sight of him. The clouds have covered him from sight. Oh, by the Holy Spirit, would he break through again this afternoon. And would his glory fill your life and your heart. So let's get into this. Let's see what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. We have been watching this account that John gives us of Jesus' life. We've seen the word become flesh, the Lord who's the lamb, the one who's great who comes near. We've seen over and over again these two themes in John's gospel. He's awesome and he's near. Oh, the greatness of our God. And in chapter 2, verse 13, he turns up in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. It's the first Passover we're told about in John's Gospel. You actually get three throughout the John's Gospel. And he goes to the temple. Now let me just deal with something um, slightly technical, which some of you won't even be aware is a thing. And if you're not aware it's a thing, don't worry about it. In all the other Gospels, Jesus does this at the end of his ministry, just before he dies. He goes into Jerusalem right before he dies, and he cleanses the temple. This is right at the start. And people argue, right? They have good old arguments because people love having arguments. They say, well, what's going on? Was it at the end or was it at the beginning? Are they arranging their material in different chronological order to make a point? I think it's actually quite simple. I think he did it twice. I think that's why we're told he did it twice, because he did it twice. Others disagree and say, no, John's just put it here because he wants to make a point. Well, fine, whatever. There's no way of settling it finally. But we want to see that John puts this right at the start to say, here is something that you need to know about this man, Jesus Christ. And it centers on the temple. So check out with me what happens. When it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle 
sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So here he comes into the temple, and he's confronted by all this stuff happening, right? Quite difficult to keep a cow quiet. So you've got a lot of mooing and barring and kind of like birds squawking. There's a lot of noise, a lot of busyness going on. Now, in one sense, you might say, well, why? Why is this going on in the temple? It's actually quite, quite simple. When you came to the temple, according to God's law, you had to bring a sacrifice. Now, of course, if you lived a long way away and you were traveling to the temple, to bring your sacrifice all that way was a bit of a hassle, right? You know, come on, little lambkin, let's go. We're going on a journey. Much easier if you can just get to the temple, buy it there. You see the logic? And with the temple tax, everybody, every male over 20 had to pay half a shekel of silver, but it had to be in the right sort of silver, and so there were money changers who were providing a service so that you could change your money. Now, we know from elsewhere that they were ripping people off, actually, that they were charging far too much for the sheep and the cattle, and they were extortionate exchange rates, even worse than the euro at the moment. And they were ripping people off. But the point here is not about the ripping off. In, in Mark's gospel, he says you're a den of robbers. But that's not Jesus' problem here. When Jesus goes in, look what he says. Well, first of all, before he says anything, he makes a whip. I wonder if this is your view of Jesus, by the way. He makes a whip. Indiana Jones style. He makes a whip. He goes in. He drives them out. Come on, cows, out. Get out. He turns over the tables, scatters coins everywhere. Why? What is it that makes him so angry? Well, he tells us in verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And here is where he exposes their sin. Remember, he's going to expose their hearts and blow their minds. Here is where he's going to expose their hearts. He's going to say, you have exchanged a relationship for a transaction. Relational has become transactional. Right, think about those two things. My father's house has become a market. Let's talk houses. Let's talk about a house. What is a house? What does it mean that Jesus would call this temple God's house? Well, a house is a place where you live. A house is a place of relationship. A house is a place where you feel at home, where you feel welcomed, where you enjoy being in relationship with one another. And throughout the Old Testament, the temple is repeatedly called God's house. God has a house. Now, I want us just to do a bit of thinking about this. Because we might say, well, that sounds a bit weird. I mean, how can you make a house for God? I mean, when I was a kid, I made a house for a stag beetle. And that was all right, because it was a stag beetle. And the stag beetle was here. I got the stag beetle. I put it in my little house, and there it was in its little house. It didn't like it. Next day, it had gone. But anyway, that's not the point. The stag beetle was there, put it in the house, now it's got a house. The trouble with God is that God isn't like that. You can't say, here's God, I'll put him in a house. 
What does it mean that God has a house? Because God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. You can't put him in a house. Okay, God has a house because that is how he chose to meet us. You see, God fills the whole heavens. God is bigger and greater and more majestic than any other being in all the universe. He created all things. He's enormous. He is in heaven in his throne room. And yet the big issue in the Bible is how that God can come and live on earth. Yeah, too often we turn the gospel or the message of Jesus into, how can I go and live in heaven? That's not the issue. That's not the issue that the Bible's interested in. The Bible is interested in the question, how can that God come and live on earth? And so that great God says, I want you to make me a house. I want you to build me a temple. And so a man called Solomon does that. He builds a temple. Just turn back in your Bibles. Let's just see this. 1 Kings... Go to 1 Kings um, chapter 8. It's on page 345. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. This is the moment when they've finished the temple. This is the first temple. Solomon's temple. And Solomon's dedicating it... And, um, and he's, he prays this great prayer. But look what he says in verse 27. He knows. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this tem- temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day this place of which you said, my name shall be there. So Solomon says, I know that you can't fit in this little temple. I don't imagine that I've made a stag, ooh, put God in a house. Solomon says, that's not what happened. What's happened is that God has condescended. He said, I will have a house so that you can be at home with me. So that you can know me. The whole point of the temple was to a relationship between God and humanity. That's what it's for. God living on earth. It was a relational place. A place where you came to offer sacrifice joyfully to the God who you loved and you worshipped. A place where you came and you offered money joyfully to the God who loved you and and you worshipped. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he says, my father's house has become a market. Tell me about markets. What are markets like? In markets, what's going on is transactions. In markets, you have consumers who go and buy stuff and get stuff. In markets, you want to get away with what you can. You want to haggle a bit. I'm not paying that for a hot dog. In Borough Market. (laughs) Markets are busy places, noisy places, where money is changing hands. 
And Jesus says, you've made my father's house into a market. The God of heaven wants a relationship with humanity and humanity says, oh no, let's just have some transactions. And so of course the temple doesn't feel like a joyful place to be anymore. Because now the temple is a place of obligation, a place where you've got to pay money, a place where you get ripped off, a place where you've got to do this and you've got to turn up and you've got to do this. A noisy place, not a place where you're in a relationship with God. And so the dark clouds of gloom have gathered over the temple because it's miserable. Jesus sees it and he says, how dare you do that? How dare you switch relationship for transaction? And he exposes what really is in our hearts. Here's the problem with us, right? The problem is that God is very, very, very willing to know us, but we're more interested in transactions. We're more interested in what we can get for ourselves. And Jesus exposes that in our hearts. I wonder if you see any of that in your heart. Let me give you some, um, some diagnosing, some tests to help diagnose whether that's true in your heart. What does it look like when you turn relationship into transaction, a relational rela- thing into a transactional thing? Well, for a start, it means you begin to think of yourself as a consumer, not as a child. So you come for what you can get. You come to be served. You come to have stuff. You come in order that your needs might be met. Rather than coming as a child to worship. You see the difference? Is it possible that we turn our relationship with God and our gathering together as church into a consumerist thing? Where we look at different churches and we measure them up and go, oh, I like that one. That's a consumer mentality. And not only do you become consumers, you also become critics, right? That's what happens in the market. Oh, this avocado's a bit squishy. Don't want that one. Oh, they've got nice avocados. I'll have three of them. You become critical. You look for what's wrong. You look for everything that spoils. That's what happens when our relationships become transactional. And so rather than coming to worship the God of heaven who wants to know us, instead we come to sit and to criticise and to moan. and to... Now let me say to you, I don't think that Globe Church is a very critical, moany church. But I think we all have the seeds of it in our hearts. So I'm not having a go today because I genuinely don't think that this is a church where we're always moaning. But I've seen plenty of churches where that is the case and I see the seeds of it in my heart. It becomes critical. I think when it's uh, transactional, these are just, I'm chucking these out for you to, to think through. When relational becomes transactional, I think we get more noisy. Marketplaces, generally speaking, are noisier than houses. What I mean by that is that we become obsessed with activity and noise. 
and everything has to be loud and everything has to be on go all the time. We've got to be shouting about how great we are. Rah, rah, rah. Linda and I, uh, Linda's my wife, if you don't know. Uh, Linda and I um, have been, in our quiet times, have been reading through 1 Kings. And Linda pointed something out the other day, which I thought was really interesting. Listen to what we're told. Um, I say this just for you to have a think about. I thought this was interesting. In 1 Kings um, 6, verse 7, listen to what it says. Don't remember turning to it, but this is just as they're building the first temple. It says, In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used. No hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Isn't that interesting? That when they built the temple, they did all of the noisy work away from the temple, and then they bought the dressed stones, because the temple was to be a place of relational. Not noise that drowns out relationships, but space. We live in a culture that's useless at silence, that doesn't know what to do with it. To the point where now, if someone, if someone wants to be honoured at a football match, we can't have a minute's silence because we don't know what to do, so we do a minute's applause because it feels better. And I want to say to us, we need to learn what it is to have time, to enjoy silence, relational quality with God that isn't crazy busy. Now, don't get me wrong. Houses are place, places where there is noise and joy and happiness and laughter. But there's also space just to be. And I wonder sometimes where the church becomes gloomy and dark and feels oppressive to us because there's just no space for us to be. It's true in our services sometimes. We just relentlessly have noise and we... To have some time just to say, Lord, I want to know you. Or even in our meal times, after after church, we head over for a meal over the road. It's quite noisy, isn't it? It's quite busy. And that's okay. It's okay because we're relational. We're enjoying one another. But it may be that you just want some time to be. That's okay. Go find some space. Go up the stairs somewhere. Go sit. Pray. Go. I mean, let... Let's not feel like we have to fill everything with activity and noise. When you are a consumer, so I'm just chucking out more stuff, okay? Just for you to think through, right? How much is your relationship with God and your experience of church relational and how much is it transactional? Transactional will mean you do the bare minimum, right? When you go to the market to buy something and they say, this banana costs 50p, you don't, do, you don't go, great, I'll give you a tenner. You say, 50p? 50p? It's brown. I'll give you 30. That's how a transactional relationship works. What's the bare minimum I've got to do? What have I got to do to get away with kind of uh, fulfilling my duties? That's what's happening in the temple. It's all become about the money and about getting oh, how much we're going to pay for this sheep and offer the sheep. Doesn't it sometimes feel like that in church? What's the bare minimum I've got to do? I'll arrive as late as I can. I'll leave as early as I can. Can I go yet? That's not how houses work, right? If you come round to our house for dinner and you go, well, what's the, 
What's the latest I can arrive? And can I just check what time I can get away? That's just rude, right? I'm like, don't, don't bother. There is a, a heart that wants to overflow with generosity that says, I love this. That's why so when Joe read Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place. I long, my heart yearns for you. I long for you. That's what relationship says. Transactions say, man, it's just nearly done. You see? We feel obligated in a transaction. We feel joyful in a relationship. And perhaps Jesus is exposing us this afternoon and saying, we can have quite a transactional view of God. Right. Enough of that. Because I now want us to see now what Jesus does next in the temple because it's incredible. He's exposed what's happening. House become a market. He's exposed what's beginning to go on. The Jews, in verse 18, I mean, fair enough, they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? I mean, it's remarkable they even ask that. When he's caused such mayhem, you'd expect the kind of security guards just to come in and go, oh, I'm sorry, mate, we need to get you out of here. But they don't. They, they ask Jesus, "What? come on, give us a sign. Prove your authority. And Jesus says the most extraordinary thing. He really does blow their minds. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. It's difficult for us to understand this because we've never seen the temple. We've never been in the temple. The temple is magnificent, right? It's massive. It took 46 years, they say, to build. It's not even finished at this point. And Jesus, this little carpenter from Nazareth, stands there and goes, destroy it and I'll raise it in three days. That's the sign. And they gently suggest to him that that's unlikely. But they haven't got a clue what he's saying. He is speaking of a reality that is so far beyond their minds can possibly guess. He's speaking of something so spectacularly massive that they don't understand what he means. Because Jesus is talking about his body. He says... The temple, me, my body is the temple. So for years and years and years, this is how it's worked. You go to the temple to worship God. God comes to dwell on earth. Here's the place of relationship. You come to enjoy God, to know God, to offer sacrifice. Here is where you meet with God in the temple. Then Jesus comes and he says, it's me. It was always about me. I'm the temple. And if he exposes their hearts by saying, it's, you've exchanged a relationship for a transaction, he now blows their minds by saying, the place is being replaced by a person. It's no longer about a physical building. It's now about a physical man. You meet God here. 
Here is the great claim that Jesus is making, that we've seen over and over again in John, that God has come to live on earth. Oh, wow, that sounds a lot like the temple. God come to live on earth. Here he is, God come to live on earth, but not now in a temple, but now in a body. He has come near. The God who made everything has now come and he dwells in this man, Jesus. If you want to meet God, you have to go to Jesus. It's the only way. He is the temple. He is looking at this huge building and he says, all of this, it's finished with now. It's finished its job. Its job was to point forward to me and now I'm here. Just like last week, the ceremonial cleansing, all that finished with now, it's me, I'm the one who cleanses you. It's new. Jesus has come to bring in the new wine. Jesus has come to bring in the new temple. You know God now through Jesus. You come to meet God now through Jesus. Jesus is the temple. And what does he say is going to happen to him? How is this temple going to be the meeting point? He says to them, Destroy me. Destroy this temple. And I'll raise it again in three days. Jesus is crystal clear that the reason that he has come, he is God come to earth, and he will, his body will be destroyed when he's crucified on a cross, and three days later he will rise again, and then you will know, you will know, you will know that he is the temple. It is his death and his resurrection that means he is the temple, the meeting place. Because it's when Jesus dies on a cross that he pays the penalty for sin. Like all the sacrifices that have been offered before, you don't need cows anymore, get them out. You don't need pigeons anymore, get them out. Because now Jesus is here. Because Jesus is going to be the true sacrifice offered in the true temple who will be destroyed and then raised so that you could know God. The heart of the Christian message is that you can have a relationship with God through this man, Jesus. Not a transaction, a relationship. God wants to know you. He wants to know you. He wants to be in relationship with you so much that he would come in person to be the temple. We're told that no one understood him at the time. But in verse 22, it says, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Can you imagine that conversation? So Jesus has been raised from the dead, they're sitting around, and then one of them goes, I've just had a thought. (laughs) You know that? You know that moment when Jesus cleansed them? I think I know what it means. (laughs) What a moment that must have been. When the panning suddenly dropped, they were right. That's what he was going on about. It's him. It's all about him. 
And that means we worship God, we come to know God, not in a place but through a person. We don't have holy places. That's why we can gather in a university lecture theatre where most of the week they talk about medicine and bodies and sickness and death and we get to talk about life and joy and freedom because this isn't a holy space. It's Jesus who's the holy God and we meet God through him. We don't have fancy buildings because you don't need a fancy building. And if you need a cathedral to walk into God for really close to God, you don't. It's not what you're feeling. You're feeling an awe at architecture. Fine, but you're not experiencing God because you can only experience God through Jesus. No building can do that for you. So don't walk into St. Paul's Cathedral and tell me it makes you close to God. Tell me it's a beautiful building. Tell me that Christopher Wren was brilliant. Tell me that its acoustics is wonderful. But don't tell me you're meeting God because that happens through Jesus. There is no other way. There is no place on earth where you have to go. You don't have to go on pilgrimage to some place in France where you can get a special experience with God. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You just come to Jesus. You meet God in his temple. You experience him face to face. That's why Jesus came. And that is enough, surely, to tear through the dark, gloomy shadows and clouds that so often gather over our hearts. And to say, Jesus, I want that. I want to live in relationship with you. To know him. One of my great fears for my own heart, one of my great fears for us as a church, is that we settle into a form of church. We settle into the transactional stuff, the obligations. We turn up. You turn up every week to focus. You turn up every week to church. You're always there but you've never tasted his glory. You've never come to Jesus to know God. That's what John's Gospel is all about. In verse 23 to the end of that little chapter, just as we finish, it's interesting, people are impressed by Jesus. People see the signs, they see the miracles, they they believe in him, but Jesus isn't fooled. They don't get it yet. He wouldn't entrust himself. He knew people. He knew that he knew what was going on in their hearts. And Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. He knows where you're at. And it may be that for some of us this afternoon, we really need just to confess to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've been putting on a show. I'm sorry. I've been going through the motions. I'm sorry. I've treated this like a transaction. I'm sorry. Lord Jesus, please would you tear through the shadows of my soul with the glory of God so that I could know you. Now let me say, I'm not talking about some spectacular experience where we all feel wooshy-wooshy. I'm not talking about even what that is. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about a craving for a reality, an experience of God through Christ that we would know him. So why don't we pray? Let's allow Jesus to expose our hearts and then let's allow him to blow our minds.
with the greatness of who he is. Let's take a moment just to be quiet before him and to ask that he would expose our hearts and blow our minds. Let's be quiet before him for a few moments and then we're going to sing. When the disciples saw Jesus driving out the money changers, they remembered what is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus was zealous, zealous for relationship with you, zealous that we would know you, that he was passionate, that we would not be distracted by a form of religion, a transactional form, but that we would press to know you and to enjoy you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you are the temple. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were destroyed and then raised again. Lord, we trust you, we worship you, and we want to know you. Amen.